Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Presence is the foundation for everything. In this podcast, Eckhart explains why presence is the bedrock for our existence. He says without it, nothing would be possible. He says most people define themselves through self-created labels based on our past or on an imagined future. He says we must ask, who am I right now? Eckhart believes we won't know the answer fully because it remains a mystery. He says hiding deep inside each of us is a sense of beingness that we cannot define. Eckhart believes we derive our true self from presence, and thus life is synonymous with the now. Good morning to everyone. I haven't prepared anything for this session. (laughs) In fact, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Now, in theory, that could be very disconcerting, not knowing. And yes, not knowing is disconcerting if you think that you should know. If you accept not knowing, then it's actually quite lovely. That could be called trust or faith or resting in being. There's even a a little book written in medieval times in England by an anonymous author, which I highly recommend. And the title of the book is The Cloud of Unknowing. And it talks, of course, in theistic terms. It's about knowing God. It tells you that you cannot know God through concepts, so you have to remove concepts from your mind and have that space of clear awareness, although that word is not used in the book. To know the modality of knowing through concepts is of course necessary. Words, concepts, For many people, that's all there is. They relate to the world almost exclusively through concepts. But then there's another possibility, and that is not conceptual knowing, but non-conceptual, unitive consciousness. And a term that I sometimes use is, on the one hand, you have object consciousness, where you have a thought is a form, like an object, it has no, not a physical one, but it has a, it's a form that consciousness takes, that's object consciousness, and most people are completely trapped in, they don't use object consciousness, object consciousness uses them, they are immersed in, swallowed up by object consciousness, not realizing that that is only one dimension of human existence, 
And if you only live in that dimension, which is necessary for being here, but if that's the only dimension that you know, then your life is one-dimensional. And not only that, it's also becomes frustrating. There is something fundamentally wrong with life or with your life if all you know is object consciousness. You, so you only know yourself through object consciousness, which is the movement of thought. And not only do you only know yourself through that, which is the story you tell yourself, which you call my life, and in many cases not a happy story. It didn't unfold as it should have. <laughs> it's not only you only you know yourself, so you know a very limited aspect of yourself, but also the world around you. You relate to the world around you through object consciousness. Everything is labeled and defined, and you have a personal relationship with things. The stronger your ego is, ego meaning the stronger your ego is, that means the more you are completely identified with object consciousness. And if you are completely identified, in other words, if you have a huge ego, massive ego, which doesn't necessarily mean you have a gigantic, overpowering personality, which well, some egos do. You have the, some egos you meet and you got the, they're intimidating. They go. <laughs> but the, the, the reverse ego can be equally strong of somebody who is a victim of everything and everybody and complains about the world, how unfair it all is, and sees everything that's wrong out there and what they've all done to me or to the group that I identify with. That, that's, that is a very strong ego too. But no matter what it is, it always implies specialness. The one who has a, what we usually identify with as ego is the big ego that says, I'm the biggest or we are the biggest. It could be a personal ego says, I am, or it doesn't, might not say it, but I am a genius. Or, or it's a, an ego that is collectively identified, in which case the personal does not come up very strongly. Everything is defined through our group, our identity group. And our identity group can only survive this conceptual reality, can only survive if there are others who are antagonistic. So you have to make others into enemies, otherwise our identity as a collective will not survive and thrive. But the more I can be, uh, the more the collective can be antagonistic towards others that they define as others, the other, the stronger it feels its own identity, and that's the ego gets strengthened through that. So you see it, and the, the form it takes varies from person to person on a personal level, and on a collective level, the form the collective ego takes varies from age to age. So the form the collective ego took in the, let's say, the first half of the 20th century, leading to 
and world wars and leading to genocide within countries and all that, leading to very destructive ideologies. In the same way that on a physical level a human being can become infected with a virus, in the same way a thought can infect a, a, a person or, or a collective, a group of people, could be millions, a certain thought form can proliferate, attract other similar thought forms to itself and take possession of your entire mind. That can happen on a personal level, first of all in a, in a very simple way, when a, a thought just doesn't want to go away, it, it's kind of stuck in your mind. And you can, you can't you have to think about it. You can't stop. That's a be, that was a relatively harmless viral infection by thought, but it can be much stronger than that. When a certain thought form becomes so prevalent in your mind that all other thought forms become um, inferior to it and are influenced by it. So this is then a person looks at everything through one particular theory, for example. Well, it could be many things. I don't want to put any thought form into your head now. <laughs> when you take it to an extreme, it becomes obvious that it is insane. When an extreme, for example, in the case somebody suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, has been taken over by viral thought, which acts the same way as a virus on the physical level. It's completely taken over that person and possesses the, the mind of that person. And everything this person looks at is through the veil of this heavy uh, virus infection, so to speak, mental virus infection. It can take over a collective, and there are certain ideas that arise in people's minds that take people over. They can spread much more quickly these days, even through the, the internet and so on. These uh, thought forms can spread very quickly and get amplified in thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people's lives, and then take over your mind. And then you think, these are your opinions. These are your viewpoints, that's how it is. And not only that, you don't recognize them as your opinions, it's the truth. So to you, you cannot differentiate any longer between an opinion or a viewpoint that you hold through which you look at the world. You can't differentiate between that and the truth of how it actually is. So your opinion becomes the truth and anybody else, anybody who does not share your opinion becomes the enemy and basically evil. <laughs> so that's, how does this happen? It happens because what is missing is the depth dimension in your consciousness, which we could call, now we've, this is all object consciousness, Identif complete identification with object consciousness becomes ego, strong ego, you are possessed by it, basically. You don't use your ego, the ego pretends to be you, it is a thought form with accompanying emotions 
that says that is the self that the Buddha talks about, that the Buddha says one of the main teachings, the delusion that is a delusion, that the self is a delusion. Jesus said it too. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> now you might not know that if you only go to the church, church or uh, why, why would he have said deny yourself? Just these two words. It's exactly the same as the Buddha's teaching. Why did he say deny yourself? What's the implication? The implication is it cannot be that the self is something real. It would be absurd to deny if that's really who you are, why should you deny it? No, the implication is that the self is an illusion. And when Jesus says deny thyself, quite simply what he means is recognize the unreality of that mind-made conceptual sense of identity. Recognize the unreality of that. That means deny yourself. Now, but how do you recognize the unreality of it? It's only through the arising of awareness, which is, I call it sometimes, space consciousness. It's not a science fiction term. Space consciousness, isn't because it's not about outer space, it's about inner space. So space consciousness is the other dimension, the depth dimension in you, that is really what awareness is. Now what space consciousness cannot be understood through explanations. I could talk for many hours here and give you more definitions of space consciousness and you may be trying to understand space consciousness. Now, of course, here can you come to the first important thing. If you're trying to understand space consciousness, that's not it. <laughs> because you're trying to apply concept consciousness to space consciousness and through uh, want to understand it through concept consciousness. You can't. So you have to take the step. Why am I then talking about it? Because the words are not something that you should believe will enable you to understand space consciousness, but the words are simply pointers or signposts. So they are not explanations as such. You have to go where the words point. And you'll see now where the words point. The words point towards the possibility of knowing things, perceiving things, not through the screen of thought, but through consciousness. Consciousness is this, the spacious awareness. So it's finding, it begins with realizing that small gaps arise in your mind where otherwise there would have been a continuous stream of one thought after another, one object after another, cluttered, a totally cluttered mind, a mind that never stops talking to itself and going on and on and making your life miserable. There's a possibility of realizing that occasionally 
even without you wanting to do anything, naturally these, the gaps of where some space consciousness arise from time to time in you and you may not identify it as space consciousness. It, it could be that those are moments that, that feel where you feel alive and you feel it feels good or you become aware of beauty or you become aware of a feeling of goodwill flowing out from you towards another human being or another life form. These are moments when suddenly this you feel elevated, life feels and to some extent briefly liberated from yourself. There are moments of natural self-transcendence that occur in your life and if they didn't, nothing that I talk about would make any sense to you. Because it's only through those moments that naturally occur and that may actually occur more as you sit here, right now, it's only through that space consciousness in you that they can recognize what, what I'm actually talking about. <laughs> if you dragged somebody here, a friend or family member, and that person is sitting next to you, now we don't know whether that person has that bit of openness of space through which he or she could understand what it, not understand conceptually, but get a sense of what it is, realize what it is that I'm talking about. Or it could be that this friend that didn't really want to come here, but somehow is stuck here now, <laughs> might become increasingly irritated and frustrated and longing to get away from here. So if you're not longing to get away from here, that means, in fact, if you enjoy being here for some weird reason, <laughs> then that means there's something in you that recognizes what, that what these words are pointing to is real and very important. And that, so they're pointing to a reality in you. The strange thing is the, our mainstream kind of world, the mainstream world that you meet through the media and everything else, is largely completely unaware of that. So everything that you are told when you relate to the things of this world through the media and so on, what it tells you is absolutely important is not absolutely important. What it tells you is absolutely important may be relatively important but not absolutely important. But if you miss what is absolutely important, then you miss the very reason for being here, because the very reason for being here is for you to realize that that's the fulfillment of a human life. So space consciousness arises naturally, even, even if you haven't practiced meditation or anything. Meditation is a more conscious way of of realizing space consciousness, but, but doesn't. Sometimes it works for people. Sometimes it works in the limited setting of their meditation practice, but not in the rest of their lives. Uh, and other people don't meditate, and yet it still arises in them. So it arises naturally. So if you can catch it when it arises naturally in your life, in a daily life, then it deepens, and sometimes. The, the intervals of 
space consciousness become longer. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about freedom from thought. For example, when you look at something, do you immediately need to call it something? You're looking at a tree. Maybe you know what the name of the tree is. But is it, does the name of that tree immediately rise in your mind so that there's no gap? You see it, and then you call it something. But even there, if you're very alert, if you're looking at a tree, and then you have something to say about it, or you think about it, even there you may notice in the first two seconds, let's say, of looking at the tree, there's no thought yet. Because you have to, you have to perceive it first. It has the perception has to be taken in. And so you need to be aware in that moment where the perception happens. There's an awareness, but there's a brief moment when the thought hasn't come up yet. You haven't labeled it yet. And if you're lucky enough not to know the name of the tree, then that's a little easier. <laughs> However, if you don't know the name of the tree, you could still, you may still find that immediately your mind comes in and says, I wonder what, that, what kind of a tree that is. <laughs> and then you say, hmm, there's an app for that. can direct your phone at a tree, take a photo, and then send it in, and then it tells you what it probably is. And that's a miraculous thing, it's wonderful, but it's not for our practice, not useful. For our practice, an app would be useful that r removes the concept from your mind. <clears throat> so notice when you when you, any, when you enter a room, or you leave a room, you open the door, you step outside, there's your room, you leave a room, the first step outside, and the first step you take everything in that you see out there. In those first moments you're not thinking for the first two or three seconds because you're just taking it in. And then usually once you've taken it in, you see there's nothing extraordinary because the mind looks for something to hang, to kind of uh, latch onto. This. Oh, look at that thing there. But there's nothing, and then you can, then you go into uh, your usual thought processes. But if you notice that in, when you first encounter something, there's always a moment of spacious awareness while the perception happens. Then the perception gets dulled, actually, by conceptualization. So first you have a clear perception, and then immediately the veil of conceptualization arises. That then, that then becomes the veil of the screen through which you but still perceive, but not as vibrantly and as clearly as before. And not, but if you're very heavily identified with concepts, the initial perception almost completely disappears and it's almost completely replaced by a mental concept. This could happen also when you meet a human being. When you meet a human being, let's say it's a human being that you haven't met before, so there, there's that human being and you relate and immediately, at first you notice there's a m moment of no conceptualization. 
But if you are, especially if you have a big ego, and big egos are very judgmental and critical, and they need to immediately find some kind of personal position towards that other person, some some kind of interpretation. And if it can be negative, that's even better, because then the ego can feel stronger in its identity. If you can complain about something in the other person or something, find fault in the other person. The ego loves that, because if you find fault in the other person, by implication, you are superior to the other person. So the ego loves that, and that is how, after the initial perception of a few seconds, conceptualization arises. So if you have a strong ego, are completely become completely immersed in the concepts that you immediately formulate for that person. So immediately that, that human being recedes, almost disappears, and is replaced with a mental concept. <laughs> and then you think you have a relationship with that person. And sometimes people do it to each other. Even after they get to know each other, they still they relate almost exclusively through a conceptual sense of self. And when you relate to another almost exclusively through object consciousness, without spacious awareness, then very quickly you also find a conflict arises, very quickly and easily. Uh, and the ego actually wants that. It's, the ego might say, I want a peaceful relationship, but everything it says and does is against peace. <laughs> Even nations do it. They say we want, they say we want peace, that they prepare for war. Uh, we are the most peaceful of nations. Just <laughs> So the one thing is then when you whenever you enter whenever you first look at something or listen to something it could be a sound in nature it could be even the the, the rustling of leaves on the tree and there's a slight breeze and you listen to it or any sound you listen to it in the moment of alert listening you're not thinking and now you might not realize that, but if you realize that, it actually deepens because then you become more fully conscious of that moment of spacious awareness. And not only it deepens, you may also find it becomes longer. And you're able to listen for longer periods of time without the interference of conceptualization, which is thinking. In other words, while you're listening, you're still and alert. And from the point of view of the conceptual mind, in that moment of listening without concept, you don't know anything anymore. And the conceptual mind and the sense of self that, uh, that arises from identification with the conceptual mind becomes very uneasy with that. It very it's, it gets a little bit shaky and says, "You should know what this is. It, you, you have to. You have to. It, it needs to, to, to take a position vis-à-vis -vis everything, or at least label everything in order. To, oh, now I know what it is. So when you have labeled something, the mind says, "I know what it is. That's of course an illusion." Because just by attaching a thought 
or a word, I mean a thought is a, it's a, it's a word that hasn't been verbalized yet, by saying oak tree, the illusion is that now you know what it is. You know nothing because you just attached a label to it. Doesn't mean you know what that is. And you can attach further labels to it by examining the oak tree in more detail. And you can write a PhD about an oak, oak trees. And I'm sure people have written PhDs about oak trees. And even these days, they become more and more specialized, probably even about the a little part of an oak tree, the roots of the oak tree. The leaves of the oak tree, you can write a PhD about that, there's a lot of stuff in there. And again, yes, you know a lot, the, do, you, do you know it? It's confusing knowing with knowing about. Knowing directly, which is through spacious consciousness, and knowing about it, which is often, we need both to live in this world. I emphasize here space consciousness because you have it, everybody has more than enough of the other, the conceptual. So to live in this world you need, you need both. You need the balance between the mind, the conceptual, conceptualized, the ability to conceptualize and to think, which is important. But you also need the ability to not think. If you only cultivate the ability to think, thinking takes you over, you habitually overthink when that happens, you engage in totally excessive thought movements, becomes involuntary, you're not using thought whatsoever, thought, thought has taken possession of you and thought pretends to be you. That's the unenlightened or the unawakened condition which we call unconscious in spiritual terms. It's not the conventional meaning of unconscious. The conventional meaning of unconscious means you've dropped. So when I say these people are unconscious, it doesn't mean they're, it means they are completely identified with the conceptualizing mind. They're completely identified with thought. That is unconsciousness, spiritually speaking. Complete absence of awareness or space consciousness. And so you may know a lot about a lot of things. You may have vast knowledge of many, many things, including perhaps psychological knowledge, because there's a lot to know about how humans operate, and again, there's nothing wrong with all that knowledge, but it's always knowledge about something, it's not the direct knowing. Now then that's interesting. It's an interesting fact sometimes a certain amount of wisdom is sometimes embodied in language. Languages arise of course, spontaneously over centuries and millennia. And uh, some languages, like Spanish and French, have two different words for to know. And that points a little bit in that direction. 
so my French is very limited. It, so you have to know, connaître, and to know savoir. Or in Spanish, you can say, you have one, one says, saber y conocer. Say is I know, in conozco is also I know, but what's the difference? You can say in Spanish, I know who you are. Sé quién eres, I know who you are. And I know you, te conozco. Conocer would be direct knowing, and the other one is conceptual, I know who you are, but it doesn't mean that I know you. <laughs> Uh, so one is more conceptual, the other is direct knowing. There's an ancient term in early Christianity, uh, gnosis, I think it's, it's spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, and I believe the G is not pronounced, it's uh, the gnosis. That's where the word knowledge comes from. And that is that refers to the early these mystics in very early medieval times and probably even early Christian times and probably even pre-Christian, the Gnostics, those who practice Gnosis, were interested in this direct knowing, direct non-conceptual knowing. As a human, you you need concepts too. So you cannot completely dismiss the world of concepts. That's part of civilization too. But civilization that gets trapped in concepts and loses its connectedness to that which is deeper can only become barren and lifeless and no, long, no longer creative. Because all creativity arises from space consciousness, from that this, the alert inner stillness. And the artist has to go there and produces from there, and then it takes form. So that's the, the emphasis here is for us on space consciousness, because we already have more than enough of the other. Everybody here is highly knowledgeable, obviously, whether or not you have a PhD or high school graduation, no, regardless, you are highly knowledgeable, and everybody here knows more than Jesus or Buddha ever did in terms of concepts about stuff, <laughs> because they were not concerned with that. So in terms of knowing about the, the world, I mean, Jesus didn't, or Buddha didn't know about the Andromeda galaxy, or how far it is, or the molecular structure of water, or whatever, or the theory of relativity, but they were not, con this, this has its place, but they were not concerned with that. Because even then, even though we have far vaster knowledge than they had then, even then people's minds were already cluttered with so-called knowledge. And a lot of that knowledge was actually not true because the way they interpreted the world was somewhat very limited. And we think the way the concepts we have now are absolutely true, and we may find in a few hundred years that many of the concepts through which we interpret the world in terms of science and science and so on are actually also erroneous. They, they may be as limited as the, con the concepts people had in medieval times about the world. 
But we don't need to go there here. That's a secondary consideration. The important thing is the arising and the deepening in you of space consciousness, which is inseparable from the present moment awareness. This is just another way of talking about it, is to talk about it in terms of present moment awareness. That is space consciousness. Now, present moment awareness, now as you all know, the present moment is all there ever is. Nobody could argue with that. And as you all know, it's written in a book somewhere too, nothing ever happened in the past. It happened in the now, because happen and now are synonymous. The, something cannot happen <laughs> except in the now. <laughs> it can ha Nothing can happen in the past. When it happened, it was the now. It happened in the now. Or when it will happen, it will be the now. So there is only the present moment. The present moment and life are synonymous. Life is now. And, and the past and future, again, are, are already concepts that we need to function here in this dimension, past and future. But other than concepts, have, they have no actual reality. So what is the past? Certain thoughts in your head. And when do you think those thoughts? Now. So the thoughts in your head are happening now. What is future? Future is thought. It's a thought in your head. Because if it were more than a thought in your head, you would, at some point of your life, have been able, or at some point in your life, would be able to experience the future. It's an impossibility. The future as such doesn't exist. It's other than a thought in your head. And when the so-called future comes, it's again now. So there's only now. So present moment awareness, first of all, is the awareness of what there is in the present moment, and that involves usually sense perception. When sense perception is not obscured by conceptualization, you can experience the flower, you can experience this room, and the totality of this room, you can experience it against the background of spacious awareness. You can experience it and know it without calling it anything in your mind. You're just aware and there's the perception. That's the beginning of the present moment. So the beginning of present moment awareness, we become aware of what, <coughs> what is there in the present moment, which could be an outer thing or it could be an inner thing. You become aware of when you're present, you can, you're, you're aware of what thoughts you have. When you're very present, you're not having any thought. When there's just presence in the background, you become aware of certain repetitive thoughts. You become aware of mental positions that you hold and defend. 
you become aware in the moment of getting angry when somebody questions your your mental position. You become aware suddenly when you become aggressive because somebody questions your your viewpoint or your opinion which you mistook for the truth. And then you become aware, oh. So you, you begin to disidentify from mental positions. You don't have to give up your mental positions. So you can continue to politically have whatever position you want. You can vote for whoever you want, politically or whatever it is. It doesn't mean if you're a Republican or a Democrat in this country, okay, I need to give up that completely. I don't believe in anything anymore, don't want any concepts. Everything is exactly the same. Uh, that's not quite it, no. You can continue to have your position, but recognize it as a position, not completely identified with it. So if you can then have a conversation without attacking the other or having this need to defend your, your identity. But if your identity, which means your sense of self, has become mixed up with your mental position, that's a bad place to be in. And that's a recipe for continuous conflict and antagonism with other people who have done this very s the same. They've identified with their mental position. They derive their sense of self from their viewpoints and opinions. So basically, you're lost in your mind. You're lost in ego. And it's wonderful if you can see conversation between two people who hold very different viewpoints and yet they don't attack each other. And when, when, when they're having it, you can have a discussion. If there's enough presence in both people, you can have a discussion that can become quite interesting. And you may even both modify to some extent your mental positions. And you can do that because you are no longer completely identified with it. You didn't need to derive your sense of who you are from your mental concepts. And that is a fundamental shift of awakening. So where do you derive your sense of self from if it's not from the mental concepts in your head? You derive your sense of self from presence. Consciousness itself, not the form consciousness has taken. Now where is that? It's here and now. And you can know it in this moment, if you're not thinking, what's left of you? If you're not thinking, do you still exist? And how do you still exist if you're not thinking about your past? And you don't have to. Let's, Im let's imagine the past. your past doesn't exist or it's a kind of dream. It is a kind of dream, by the way, but this thing. Let's, your past doesn't exist, it's a kind of dream. Let's, let's pretend the future doesn't exist, it's another kind of dream. That's true too, by the way. But, so there's only, there's only this moment. Now, without, rem without remembering your whole, your, the story of your life, if you don't revive it in your mind now, in fact, if there are no thoughts in your mind, what's left of you. Now it's very hard to define or to even say what it, what is it. 
Who am I without my history? Who am I without past and future? And then you can just ask the question, who am I right now? And you won't know the answer, not conceptually. What it remains a mystery, it remains an open question, who am I? But hiding in there is a sense of beingness or presence that you cannot define. There is a sense of aliveness, of beingness or presence, which you may even feel with the entire, your entire body becomes a, that feeling of presence is not just in the head. There's a feeling of just presence. What is that? Don't know what that is. It's just presence. Without that, nothing would be possible. You wouldn't perceive anything. You wouldn't think anything. It, that is the funda, it's the basis for everything. It's a substratum, to use a geological term. The substratum of everything is that. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening. <laughs>